0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, would you open Luke chapter twenty, please? And before we dive in, would you uh, would you pray with me? Lord, those words are powerful if true. And thank God they're true. You're mighty to safe. And Lord, where we have a world of hurt, you bring hope. And where we're broken in so many ways, you pour out your blood. And Lord, where this life is challenging and ever so short, you bring resurrection. And we're grateful for that. And you've given us your spirit, and we're grateful for that. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. That you would um, draw us into the reality this morning of the resurrection through your word. And that you would do a work in us for the sake of your name. Because we know that's what's best in every way. So we offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you uh, I know may have heard me share a little bit. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was at my niece's wedding in Arkansas, and while there, my brother shared uh, face-to-face for the first time his ordeal that I had only heard about in just a little tiny snippet. Um, On April 27th, 2014, a tornado touched down in central Arkansas. Three quarters of a mile wide at its base, reaching winds in excess of 190 miles an hour. That's the top end of F4. Some evidence suggests it may have even broken 200 miles an hour. F5, less than 1 in 1,200 tornadoes, hits that size. It's utterly devastating. It was a beast. It stayed on the ground for an hour, ran right through my brother's town, through his neighborhood, which sits on Conway Lake, Recontoured a lot of things and then ran on down and destroyed another town down the road. Sixteen people were dead when everything was said and done, and the devastation was incredible. And my brother lived through it. Seven PM is when it touched down. Seven thirty is when it hit his neighborhood. All the sirens are going off. And he said it was just utterly terrifying. He took refuge internally in a coat closet. That was the safest place he had. His house is a solid brick house. But in winds like that, it doesn't much matter. Thankfully, it didn't hit full brunt on his house, but as he was cowering in his closet, it ripped the roof off, it ripped the, uh, the deck off, and for the next couple of weeks, every evening when he'd come home, he'd get his pocket knife out and dig blades of grass out of the brick where the wind had embedded it. His neighbor, who lived right on the waterfront, rode out the tornado in a little bit more dramatic fashion. He came home about that time of the evening and was tired and he was hot and he was dirty and he was sweaty and you can't miss the sirens when they're going off. He decided, however, instead of taking shelter, he would take a shower. And as he was finishing his shower and opened the door to reach for the towel, his entire house disappeared from around him. And the next thing he realized is he was a 100 feet out in the middle of Lake Conway thrashing around. With one thought on his mind, "Where are my pants?" <laughs> an amazing story. Both men, in one sense, you could say, were able to cheat death. And his neighbor, especially. I mean, what, the, what an extraordinary experience! He he was able to cheat death. He was supposed to be dead, but he's not. Some of us have actually had a, maybe not the tornado experience, but we've had a death cheating experience, maybe some accident that you just miss, or maybe you actually wind up in the accident, and it should have been fatal, and you're actually not hurt, and you may even find yourself gripping the wheel sick to your stomach from all of the adrenaline, saying out loud to yourself, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. It's amazing grace of God when you can cheat death. You're supposed to be dead, but you're not. That's great news, but the bad news is um, it's temporary. You're supposed to be dead, but you're not, but you will be. Three miles from my brother's house is the Mayflower Cemetery, and there are side-by-side headstones there. Beverly C. Bishop, Olin F. Bishop, my parents, my mother passed in October of 2003, my father in October of 2006, so the 2014 tornado, even though it came right through their neighborhood, really didn't bother them. Now, some would say it didn't bother them because they are no more, and I would say otherwise. I would say it didn't bother them because it's not capable of bothering them. They haven't figured a way to cheat death. They've actually figured a way to beat death. When you cheat death, you're supposed to be dead, but you're not, but you will be. When you beat death, in my parents' case, they are dead, but they're not, and they never will be because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 20, you see that verse 27 starts with these words, there came to him some Sadducees, those who that deny that there's a resurrection. And before we dive into the passage, I just want us to think about that for a minute, because in a room like this, most of us accept the resurrection, perhaps all of us accept the resurrection. And it's, it's, it's kind of a commonplace thought that we don't really pay attention to it, and everything hinges on this question, what happens when we die? From the beginning of time, that's been a question people have wrestled with. In the book of Job, a book that perhaps is relating events 4,000 years ago, we don't know exact timing, but it's very ancient. In chapter 14, he's musing, he says, you know, if you cut a tree down, Uh, If water comes, it can sprout and come back to life. But what about me? What about when I'm cut down? And then in verse 14, he makes this statement. He said, if only I knew that I would come back to life, then I would be able to wait patiently through all that I'm experiencing. Right? If if the resurrection is real, then it changes how I live right now. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, They're talking about resurrection and about Christ, and if he's risen from the dead, everything's changed, but if resurrection's not real, then Christ didn't rise, and then everything's a mess. And it says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Resurrection is the absolute foundation point for our faith. And this actually says if it's not real, we're idiots, right? There may be a lot of smart people in this world, but not one of them's in this room because we're just idiots. But if resurrection has happened, if Jesus has risen from the dead, it changes everything. In fact, that's what he goes on to say. He talks about Adam bringing death on all, but in Christ, all can be made alive. So when we come to this passage in Luke it's not simply a historical artifact, a curiosity. Here's this group of people called the Sadducees. Isn't that a funny name? And they've got this issue. What a quaint little issue they've got. And we read the story and go, isn't it amazing how Jesus shuts them up and then move on? This is actually about vitally important things for us right now, about the reality of the resurrection. and What does it mean to anchor our lives in that? Sadducees are a group of people who are the religious leaders par excellence of the day, at least theoretically. They're the priestly class. They're the ones who have the first claim to being God's representatives, only they don't believe in resurrection. Their whole life is built on just what's right in front of them. What's anchoring them is what they can get right now. And in that kind of setting, it makes no sense to sacrifice if I don't have to. It makes no sense to do hard things if I can do comfortable things because there's nothing beyond this. This life isn't anchored in anything bigger and there's not really any accountability beyond this moment. So how do I maximize this moment? And, and no fool wants to say, well, let's minimize this moment. Let's get the worst out of life that we can. That, that's ridiculous. But there's a bigger picture and they don't see it and so they have compromise. That's what they're known for compromise. And so when they come to Jesus, they're, per, they're part of a parade of pushback that's coming because Jesus' teaching and his ministry is coming to its climax. He's about to go to the cross, and he's basically angered all of the leadership for different reasons. Because if he's right, they're all wrong, and change is coming, and nobody likes change unless it's change that they're themselves dictating. If it's imposed on them, we don't like it. And So the Sadducees sure don't like whatever Jesus means, and they're trying to discredit him, and they're trying to discredit him based on the resurrection. They tell a story that's absurd and ridiculous and comical and foolish sounding, but it's not just to make fun. It's actually to make a point, because if resurrection's true, what they describe is at least theoretically possible, and that is so absurd, how could God really be a part of that? Why would you listen to this guy? He believes in resurrection, and that's obviously ridiculous. Let's read the story, shall we? Verse 27 There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. It's like, this is crazy. How could God allow any kind of scenario where this, how are we going to decide who she's married to? The first guy, because he has the first claim. The last guy, because he has the last claim. The one that she was married to longest, because he has the longest claim. The one who's got the best smile. The one who treated her nicest. The one who was most like God. How do you decide that? This is crazy. Obviously, the resurrection is a crazy idea. Now, in order to understand the story and not just get hung up on the details, we have to understand just a little of their cultural context. It was a culture in which women did not have the standing legally that men did, which meant a woman who was a wife, if her husband died, if she was a widow, she was vulnerable, and that was a problem in their culture. Additionally, and in some views even more importantly, the blessing of God was literally tied to the land. And so the inheritance that somebody would have was really important. Who got the inheritance? And so if a husband died without a male heir, then both his widow and his inheritance was in jeopardy and they couldn't allow that to happen. And so they had this law that said, well, the brother will marry the widow. And when they have kids, the first child, the first male child, will be considered the heir of the dead brother. And then any subsequent children they have, well, that'll be his heirs. That's the way it works. Well, in this case, it doesn't work that way. And seven sons in order and then the woman. And their point is not so much about the law. That's just the context. Their point is, isn't this ridiculous? How could you believe in a resurrection that could create this kind of scenario? Now, if you follow along, Jesus is about to answer them. And it sounds like he's just shutting them up, if you read it casually. But he's actually going deeper than that, because he doesn't want to just win an argument. never does. He wants to win a heart. And so he's going to take them to the core of their problem. And if you follow along, starting in verse 34, Jesus says to them, "...the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead..." Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well. Where they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now that last little bit, the scribes are probably not Sadducees. Likely they're Pharisees. And they're listening in. They hate the Sadducees. And Jesus has just made the Sadducees look foolish. And they're like, yeah, good answer. Because now the Sadducees are shut up. But as Jesus answers, that good answer actually tells us three things about the resurrection that's telling the scribes or the Sadducees, those three things. I think three things that are still relevant for us. The first thing is that the resurrection is real, thank God. It means everything's changed. The resurrection is real, thank God. The second thing, the resurrection's real, you can believe it. You can believe it. And the third thing, the resurrection is real, you can be part of it. You can be part, I can be part of it. So look at how he does this. Start verse 34 and verse 36, there's a contrast. You see where he talks about the sons of this age? And that's a collective, right? It it means sons and daughters, the children of this age, both men and women. There's there's a kind of life that's part of this age. And then he goes on in the verse 36, he says... uh, There's the sons of God, or the children of God, the children of the resurrection, part of a different age. And part of the problem that he's addressing with the scribes is is as they look at resurrection, they're, they're completely misunderstanding it. They don't believe it anyway, but their scenario doesn't work because resurrection, the new life that God gives us, is not just an extension of this life, but maybe improved on a little bit. It's a whole different order of life there's children of this age, and there's children of the coming age. And children of the coming age are different. There's a lot of commonality with life now, but it's so different in so many ways. It's false to try to think of, well, what would it be like just to have this life better? Marriage is no longer a relevant issue. We're like angels. We aren't angels, by the way. When you die, you don't sprout wings, you don't get a halo, and I sure hope nobody hands you a harp, right? You just are in a different state, and that state is so different. Jesus is saying, you guys misunderstand resurrection. You're picturing it like just a a souped up version of now, and that's wrong. The people of the resurrection are not even able to die. It's a different quality of life that they've been given. You and I, As children of resurrection, as children of God, have been born again from above, and new creation is the word that describes us. And we already have resurrection life. We don't have its full expression now, but we have a true expression now, and it's a different order of life, and it points to something greater. And thank God for that. The resurrection is real, thank God. Steve, you were very kind when you got up and suggested that they might think, oh, Robert got really old. I'm thinking some of them are still looking at me going, yeah, he did. <laughs> right? This world is a different order. It's a, it's a decaying order. I find that out every time I go and get my hair cut. Right, they put that nice black drape on you and then they throw all that gray hair on there, which I have no idea where it comes from. It can't possibly be coming from my head and yet it is. And then they make you look the whole time you're looking in the mirror. And I, I look at that guy and go, who is that? Someone needs to iron his face. He's got a lot of wrinkles there. It's decaying, right? In order to fight the decay, I, I work out pretty regularly. I know, it's hard to believe, but I do. And I, I lift weights. And um, I got an injury not terribly long ago right here. And it's, it, it, if I touch it, it hurts. Or if I, if I put any torque on it, it hurts. I have no idea what happened. I'm thinking, you know, since since I got that injury, now my elbow clicks and pops. I'm wondering if maybe I chip bone somehow and it's gotten in the wrong place. I don't know, and you know what? I'm gonna go to the doctor fairly soon. I'm not gonna ask him. There's just no point. It was a few years ago, I asked him about a different elbow condition. I went into him and I said, Doctor, when I do this, my elbow feels like it's got like bits of glass in there and it kind of sounds crunchy. And he said, then don't do that. God. But me, trying to push into it, I said, yeah, yeah, but, but is it supposed to be that way? Why is it that way? And he looked at me, and he said, it's not supposed to be that way. Then he looked at my chart, and then he looked back at me, and he says, Mr. Bishop, how old are you? I said, Great, I'm at that phase of life. My doctor's like 15 years younger than me, saying you're getting old. I just want to look at him and said, who asked you, punk? <laughs> right? This order of life has its moments, but it is fading, and we all know that. Thank God. Resurrection is a different order. Thank God he draws this distinction to say, yeah, there's, there's life like this, and then there's a whole new order of life that's coming, because in reality, the physical things aren't even the things that are hardest, are they? It's all the other things, because in this order of life, I struggle And I stumble, and in my struggling and stumbling, I wreak havoc in my life and in the life of other people, and as hard as I try, I I still do that, and you do too, and it would be an awful thing to say, well, let's just take this extend it out and make a few improvements. The Sadducees don't actually believe in the resurrection, but their scenario falls apart because their picture of the resurrection is just wrong. God has come to change the order of my life. Thank God. The resurrection is real. And it means there's something vastly different and better that is going to come to me and actually has partially come to me now. Um, The second thing I think Jesus shows them, if you look in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, right? The resurrection is real. You can believe it. These are people who dismiss or minimize most of the traditional Jewish faith. In fact, when he talks about angels, they don't believe in angels. So he's pulling that in, saying, let's deal with the whole package here. And they minimize the rest of Scripture, but what was written in the books of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. That's controlling. And so much of the conversation about resurrection was coming from the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he's saying, whoa, whoa. Resurrection's real, and you can know this. Look at what it says in Exodus. In the passage where Moses is standing before the burning bush. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He uses a present tense. Not I was... You see, they are still alive to God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not died and are gone. Something has happened. The resurrection is real. Sometimes I think we look at people back then through a a lens that says, you know, of course they believed certain, I mean, they worshiped all kinds of goofy things. They're not much like us. I mean, they're just a bunch of credulous bumpkins, right? They'll believe anything. Not so. These people are absolutely skeptical. And the thing about skeptics is God loves skeptics. And so he he takes them into their territory. He doesn't just answer their question and make them look like fools. He actually says, let me speak to your issue because you don't think the resurrection's real and you think it's a matter of its credibility. I can show you how you can believe this. What you already accept clearly teaches it. It is not a matter of credibility. It's a matter of heart. You disbelieve because of this, not because of this. Let's go to Moses. We all accept Moses. Here's what he says, black and white. Now the question is not, is it credible? The question is, what are you going to do with it? And we don't know what they do. The implication is they walk away unchanged. But he's raised the issue so that they can actually change from the heart. Um. This is a historical context that isn't repeated. We're not in the same place. But we still have some of the same kinds of questions that pop up every now and again. And one of the questions sometimes is how believable is what we hold to it? The is real. Can I believe it? Can I really believe it? And we don't have time to go into great detail, but let me just say a couple of things real quickly. If you understand just the things that we can discern historically, the basic facts. Jesus lived in Palestine. He taught certain things. He somehow got crossways with both his Jewish and the Roman government who put him to death on the cross, and they buried him in a borrowed tomb. And later on, that tomb was found empty, and there were people who said they had seen him, and there were a lot of people who had said they'd seen him after that. Right? Those, are, those are things that can be historically established. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? There's not really an, an easy way to explain that unless the resurrection actually happened. There's a lot of things about what we have. We're 2,000 years later. I can't look Jesus in the eyes, but I do have this to look at. And if you're one of those who's kind of wrestling, God's not afraid of your skepticism. It, it, it's, it's ultimately not a question of what do you understand. It's a question of what you're willing to accept from the heart, right? It, it, it has to go there. But if I've got questions Read it. Read it. It's, it's amazing. If this is a made-up story, why there's no story of the resurrection, for instance. You ever think of that? The single most important event in history, and there's no record of it. We have death. We have burial. We have empty tomb. There's no resurrection. Why not? Because they weren't making stuff up. They only wrote what they saw. Nobody saw the resurrection. We have different witnesses that we're aware of. The account in 1 Corinthians 15 is written so that we know that it dates to Jerusalem in the mid-30s when it happened. Right? It's not legend. And there's all these witnesses, 500 at one time. Then there's, there's Paul himself who was making a career out of saying Jesus is a charlatan, the resurrection is a hoax, And Christianity is a pernicious lie, and the next thing we know, he's ready to die for that very faith. Why? Well, he tells us, because Jesus spoke to me out of heaven, and I really wasn't in the mood to argue with somebody who's talking to me out of heaven. I was wrong. I saw the resurrected Christ. Or there's James, Jesus' own brother, right? Next in line, second born. First born of Mary and Joseph, second born of Mary... Can you imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow? How would that be? You could never win. Right? You'd never why can't you be more like your brother? Oh. And and if you ever had an argument or you wanted to press in, you'd say, Mom, Dad, you always take his side? Why? You're right, James, we do. (laughs) Not like he's perfect. Actually, James. Oh yeah, like he can walk on water. Right? There's nowhere to go with that. And we know that James grew up resenting his brother. He was ashamed of him and tried to shut him down. And the next thing we know, he literally dies imitating his brother, praying for the people who've just killed him. They threw him off a high point in the temple. And as his blood is, is spilling out and his breathing his last, he's praying for the people who've just murdered him, just like his brother did on the cross. Why would he do that? because he saw his brother alive. The resurrection's real. There's a lot of reasons for us to say, every reason to believe this thing. The question is not, is it credible? The question is, where's my heart? Jesus is moving beyond the Pharisees' kind of intellectualized approach to say, this is about your heart. You can know this is real. The resurrection's real, and you can know it. What are you gonna do with it? Is his implication? The last key point that Jesus makes for them If you look back in verse 35, he gives the gospel, he implies it, he he makes it clear that there's something more than what they're thinking about the way God works. Verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, they're the ones that are going to have a resurrection life. The way he says that is very awkward, but it's very intentional considered worthy. Not your weight on a balance and you, you figure out which is better. No, this is something that from God, he grants this to you. He reckons you. He considers you worthy. It's conferred. And in that, we see that the resurrection is real and, and I can be a part of it. Because here's, here's the reality if I had to earn my way with God, I'd never make it. I'd never make it. And neither would you. We tend to, if we take that approach, we try to look at life through a moral lens. And by God's grace, on the moral bell curve, I fall to the upper end of that from my experience and my observation. I think most people would say that. You know what? God's standards, perfection, 100%, no failing, no flaw, no fault. I miss that so much in so many ways. You know, how many times do I want to say, if I could just have a do-over, God, how many do-overs would I need to even make it through one day? There's not enough mulligans in the universe. Now, you may be further up the moral bell curve as far as we would measure that, and you go, "I'm, I'm, I'm closer to that standard. It doesn't matter. You are so far from there, you'll never make it. And you may be sitting there going, hey, that's not the end of the bell. I'm, I'm at this end here. You don't have to convince me. This is why it's good news. It doesn't matter where you fall on that because God's not grading on a curve and he's not looking at that the way we do. Being qualified for the resurrection, for the eternal life is something that's conferred, not something that's earned. I've heard the gospel described using two words. Do versus done. Here's what I do. Here's what I need to do. Here's what I want to do. And I never, ever get there. The gospel is there's no do. It's done. Here's what Jesus has done. End of story. I mean, Steve made that point out of the the blood. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. We remember something. We don't repeat it. It's done. It's done. And that's good news. Because that means it's available for anyone. If they appropriate it. But what do I need to do? There's one thing I need to do. Surrender. Surrender. Say, Lord, help. I can't do this. I give up. Throw myself in your mercy. I trust I believe Jesus died my death and I believe he rose again offering new life. I believe he conquered sin. I believe he conquered Satan. I believe he conquered death and I need that and there's nothing I can do. So based on what he's done, help. The resurrection is real and you can be a part of it. I can be a part of it. The Sadducees could have been a part of it and it's not because of their social standing. It's not because the high priest was a Sadducee because they controlled the temple because they were the ones in power that everyone looked to. It's because God considers people worthy based on something totally different. And the resurrection can be yours. The only thing to do is surrender and trust because it's not about do, it's about done. And maybe you're wrestling with that. I would just really urge you to talk to somebody this morning before you leave because you can be transformed doesn't mean everything is all suddenly perfect. That doesn't come until we're with Jesus. But resurrection life begins now. There's a new quality of life that's yours through the Spirit. Now, I'm pretty convinced that most of us have really processed, at least at some level, the resurrection and have responded in faith. And so that's all encouraging enough. But I want to ask one more pointed question that I hope will be helpful for us to take it one more level into our lives. And that is, how many Sadducees are sitting in the room right now? None of us are actual Sadducees, right? That, That group's long gone. But in this text, what sets them apart is they deny there's a resurrection. Now, you would never get me to deny there's a resurrection from my lips. But how often do I live to deny there's a resurrection from my life? How many of us as followers of Christ affirm a truth that doesn't really match our day-to-day lives? And we're living actually kind of like the Sadducees, like this is it, what's next, right? It, it, we're told in, in 1 John, don't love the world or the things that are in the world, all this in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful part of life, it's not of the Father but is of the world and this world is passing away and so are its lusts. And yet, how often do I live for the pleasure of the moment? For what impresses? For what is written on my business card or sitting on my driveway? Or how often do I just live without being anchored in resurrection reality? Jesus told a story earlier in Luke. Just remind you of that, because I think it's a good picture of what happens It's it's in Luke 12. He says there's a parable. uh, The land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Here's a guy who's just living for right now. Just living for what's around him. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How many of us right now would say, you know, eternal reality, my relationship with God, his mission in this world, the fact that this is only part of the story, that is shaping just all the contours of my life. And how many of us would say, you know, actually, I think I've kind of gotten off track. And I'm focused on these other things. The other things aren't bad, unless they get in the way. How many of us are living kind of like this guy? For this moment, for this thing, for the next experience, for the next acquisition, for comfort, for pleasure, things that have their place, but have a hard time staying in their place. How many of us or even presuming. He says, oh, I've got this stuff for many years to come, and God says, this is it. Accountability starts now. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about my cousin who was doing some business in the area, and so last year she was at church with us multiple times, and it was fun to watch her here. She's vibrant and alive and, and passionate and just enjoying worshiping Jesus, and she's pretty demonstrative, so it was just kind of fun to be around her. New Year's, she's not feeling well. She goes to the doctor, and he says, um... You have cancer. It's bad. Time's short. She died two months ago. Just like that. Like, what happened? I don't know. I can't presume upon tomorrow. Living anchored in the resurrection gives me a greater immediate connectedness with what matters in this moment, and it when, if. if if God calls me home right now or if he calls me home 35 years from now, it's just gonna change each of those days. But to live with a presumption that it's about now and now's gonna be long or just squeeze out of now everything that I can for this moment is is actually kind of like the Sadducees. It's to deny with my life the resurrection. We're not really in danger of being where the Sadducees literally were. But we're not very far removed if we're not careful. Or I was thinking about this passage and Titus talks about God's grace bringing salvation, God's grace being our sanctifying power and then it says it, it, it builds within us this longing for the return of Christ. It's focus on the resurrection, if you will. And then it finishes by saying he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. In light of that coming of Christ, there's a zeal to say, and I have a mission right now, and the world around me needs, so I need to be engaged. I was with a group of missionaries who were about to go out into really scary places, places where some of them would surely be persecuted, some of them might even die, and they were willing, but they were terrified. You could actually like smell the fear in the air, and this missionary statesman was addressing them And he kept coming back to say, live this day in light of that day. Live this day in light of that day. And his life backed it up because they knew he'd been attacked and chased and all kinds of things. And he was no Superman, but he was living this day in light of that day. And suddenly, they were able to do what seemed really hard because it mattered that much. I had a friend years ago who, uh, he decided he was going to leave the church that he and I were both attending at the time because he said, I don't think the people around me are really serious, and I need help. I'm a man on a mission, and everyone else doesn't seem to be, and, and he was passionate to get the gospel out, and he actually worked in the inner city in a very dangerous gang neighborhood, and he would share the gospel with anyone, and often it put him into per- precarious situations. He didn't care. He, he'd actually been in Vietnam. He'd been shot. He had a purple heart, right? And he said, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. What are they going to do? Shoot me? That's already happened, on a mission, and, and he said, I, time is, is, is precious because there's an eternal reality that is going to break forth, right? We hear stories like that, and we go, yeah, that's good, but that's, that's like whoa, way up the, that's like the marine level of kind of life expectation, we all need to be willing to step into whatever hard thing God has, but we may not be able to see ourselves there, so I was thinking, what else? I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago who's got cancer. And he goes to chemotherapy. And while he's sitting there with chemo, he, repeatedly he's had people come up and say things like, You must be terrified. And his answer is pretty simple No, I'm not. I know how this turns out. Now he's not this big, bold guy. In fact, he said, I've never really shared the gospel that much in my life, but I'm getting all kinds of opportunities now. He's anchored in the reality of resurrection. Or a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with somebody who had a terrible day, a terrible day. And they didn't give me the narrative, so I've kind of strung together the narrative that makes sense out of it. I don't know if it happened exactly like this, but all the details are accurate. And, and as they came out their door, picture this, coming out your door first thing in the morning to go to work, and you see your car, and, and, and something's not quite right. And you look down, and the rear wheel is, is, the tire's flat, the wheel is mangled. It's just a mess. There's no way you're going to drive that. And you go, what happened? I didn't park it like that last night. And then you realize, I didn't park it there last night either. That's the sidewalk. I parked it there in the street. And then walk around, and there's a huge smash mark where somebody in the middle of the night had smashed into it and thrown it up under the curb and then drived off. Drived off? Drove off? Left. (laughs) And how are you? I mean, it's a hit and run. You're never going to know anything. And just the frustration level and, and, oh, man. And then, look, oh, lo and behold, there's a little note on the windshield wiper, just under the windshield wiper. Maybe it'll give me some light on what has happened. And went and picked that off, and it was a ticket for parking on the sidewalk. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding me? That's all true, by the way. And, in fact, later, they learned that the car was totaled. Like, that's terrible. That's, ah, and it's frustrating. But, you know, they were really handling it from what I could tell pretty well by saying you know that really is frustrating but it's not going to define my life I'm not going to let it distract me i got to get a new car I hate that but you know what there's somebody trying to live anchored in the resurrection so how about us Um, resurrection's real thank God it's real the resurrection's real and, and I can believe it. The resurrection is real. I can be part of it. And most of us in this room would say amen, amen, and amen. Okay. How's the resurrection playing out in my life right now? How am I living my life? Let me just read one passage to close. Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, Not on things that are on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father Through him. I've been raised with Christ. My life's now hidden with him. I don't understand all of that right now. But I have both a call and an equipping to live differently anchored there. Sadducees just didn't get it. We've gotten it. How are we living it? Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and for the resurrection. We need more grace, Lord. We need your resurrection power by your Spirit to be transforming us moment by moment because we're still really frail and weak and we still need a lot more mulligans than we care to admit, but we do. Thank you that it's not about what we do, it's about what's been done. And would you just let that life flow from us by the power of your Spirit? Lord, if there's someone in this room that doesn't actually have that life, would you bring them to salvation? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.